Hi, welcome to the episode of In Conversation with Industry Experts interview series. I hope you guys are staying healthy and staying safe in whatever part of the world you're living in. As you know, with the advent of new technologies, smartphones, digital applications, we have started redefining or defining a new area of interest for us. Businesses are trying to find novel ways of wooing their customers on trying to get them better experiences than ever before. This area is known as user experience or UX in short. As you know, these are the interview series that we bring in to create deeper awareness in this field of exciting digital innovation. And today's topic, as you can guess, is UX research or user experience research. And we are joined by one of the most renowned experts of this field, Eduardo Gomez-Ruiz. So Eduardo, I would like to welcome you to this interview series. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. It's a, a pleasure. Excellent. So uh, Eduardo, you know, you, since you are one of the experts, why don't we start with a quick introduction? Well, uh, UX, as Norman Nielsen uh, defined it, is the set of all abstract and more uh, core elements that define the user experience and define whatever interaction a person that uses a solution, product or service has with it or with the company. So in simple words, it, it is everything that surrounds an interaction between a user and a service or a product. So that could be a car, a smartphone, uh, an app, a website. You know, I think uh, this is one of the areas where uh, most of us have some knowledge about UX experience or user experience or UX in short, but a lot of us probably have just a little bit and, and then we get lost, you know, and you mentioned some very um, critical elements. Uh, you talked about how you interface with your cars or how you interface with other electronic gadgets. I mean, this is something that we don't normally associate with user experience compared to how we interact on, on our smartphones or how you interact with uh, online apps like this. So that's good to know. Share some examples if you can to kind of illustrate what user experience is for our viewers. Yeah, you are very right in, in mentioning that because there are tangible elements that we can notice have been designed, but there are also some intangible elements that make our experience much more pleasurable and that maybe we have not noticed or thought that this was actually designed. The whole service from the moment that you notice you have a need until you have engaged with that solution or with that company and you're safely back at home is a service that has been fully designed. So for example, for almost the past three years, I work at Uber and every part of the service that you have or receive from the company is actually designed. Whether you see it, that you are interacting with the solution or not, everything that happens from the moment that you notice that you have a need to go somewhere until you reach your destination and, and you're kind of safely rating or giving feedback about how was your experience has been thought of and designed for it. Right. I think, I think Uber is one of the best examples that most of us can relate with. Now, typically, it may not be Uber, but where would a company start its journey if they have to get involved in the UX space? 
I believe everything starts identifying what are the needs that you are uh, aiming to solve. And, and we do that through UX research. It can be done formally by an actual UX research team where I was part of and I've been dedicating a big part of my professional career to. Or it can be done simply by interacting with those users or those customers, even if not done in a very formal setting. So I think the first stage is always the identification of the problems and the user needs. And from there you move forward to define, okay, what do we want to do about this? Is this something we want to solve or make easier or make cheaper? Or is that something that we don't want to get into, but should always start there in, in those needs. Right, so, uh, you know, just for articulation purposes, would it be possible for you to share an example of what uh, the user feels? Say, for example, I'm saying Uber, but it could be any. What would you define as an interaction with customers, you know, in order to give a better articulation of the subject? So here you are putting me in between two lines, uh, the lines of being an, an expert and the lines of being a person who empower anybody to <laughs> connect with the user. So let me rephrase a bit the question sure. uh, and, and work it out as any potential interaction to learn what the customer needs are, it can be considered in a way research. Yeah. Uh, how well you do that, it would yeah. define if you are kind of a craftsman into doing that or you're an amateur. So as right. you asked me about the first steps, I'd yeah. say that first steps can be something as simple as reading some of the feedback, customer feedback, customer incidents that the, the customers uh, share with the company, mm -hmm. listening in to support, support calls. This is normally a very typical activity I do when I organize immersions from uh, HQ headquarters to being on the ground. Uh, normally salespeople are in direct contact with customers and they have that, they receive that direct feedback on a daily basis. Sure. The, the difference of doing research in a more formal setting is that we use proper research methods. And right. they may start from being surveys, diary studies where a person, a user share on a frequently basis some of their experience or interactions with the solution. Mm -hmm. or it can be qualitative interviews. And in-depth interviews are one of the most common methods where you have a set of topics you want to discuss and you make sure that you don't ask them in a way to receive a yes, no answer right. or in a leading or biasing way, but rather to discover and understand how the user sees it. So mm -hmm. it's all about building empathy with that other perspective of the user. Yeah, I think building empathy is key to the whole to the whole process. Now, once you conduct the UX uh, research or the user experience research, right? Uh, how do you go about putting it in some form of an application or interface? How, how does that process work? So after gathering those uh, customer feedback or um, responses, we go through an analysis process that is normally done in groups. Mm -hmm. where we fill the, the wall of post-its, or now that is also transitioning, especially in this remote setting, <laughs> to digital. But yes. imagine an infinite canvas yeah. um, where you can put post-it of your different uh, learnings or findings 
And then what you do in this analysis process is identifying patterns. Mm -hmm. What are some of those patterns that better reflect or answer the original research question that we had? And from there, you formulate insights. And after those insights, which are novel pieces of learnings that define how your users respond or feel or think about a certain topic, you create solutions out of that. So I work with designers, product designers for the most part, who design those digital interfaces that solve the problem that we have identified in the first place. And then from those initial solutions, we test them again with customers and then we see how well are they solving the original problem. And if that goes well, we, it goes in through uh, production and development through our IT or developers. You mentioned about product designers, uh, you know, what are some of the teams that you have to work with on a regular basis with respect to the UX? There are, there are plenty and plenty of teams. So starting from UX research and teams that support that research that we call them research operations, people um, who help us have the right processes, recruit the right people and ensure the quality of the entire process to designers who actually understand and package that problem and later visualize some of those concepts, to copywriters. So actually designers are not always writing what you see or interact with. Those messages are thought of by experts called copywriters. And a big part that uh, plays an important role in defining all these and orchestrating all, all of this is product management. So product managers are those product leaders who establish the vision and organize the whole team setting to reach that vision. And now more than ever, data is super important. So we have teams of data scientists or data analysts that uh, help us with inputs and understanding about what are the actual behaviors we are seeing mm -hmm. in our company that determine which direction or which uh, problems should we uh, solve for. Uh, so they are an integral part of, of this development process. What are some of the products, the way you would define them, your teams would define them? What are some of the ways that you cut, slice and dice this whole interface or the whole interaction? So this, this type of segmentation or separation into smaller part of the experience happens normally in larger organizations or corporates like Uber. Mm -hmm. So you normally separate by your user segment. So yeah. there is one app for the drivers. There is one app for the riders. There is one app for the restaurants. There is mm -hmm. one app for the careers that bring you the food. And then within each of the apps, there are groups or teams that focus on onboarding the user, on monetizing that user or any type of money relationship. There is a team that focus on loyalty or retention of those users, uh, activation. So depending on how specialized the teams become, you have more product teams. And Sometimes you have up to 20 product teams for a single app. You mentioned about uh, UX and you mentioned about product teams, copywriters. Now I'm assuming not everybody 
uh, gets it right the first time, you know, especially with the dynamic world that we live in. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of experimentations that are done. Now, who would typically uh, do these experiments and what would compel uh, the teams to conduct these experiments and how do they go about experimenting? So normally the data scientist team defines the experiments in collaboration with the broader team to define, okay, what are we aiming to learn? And this has a lot of parallelism with the, um, the research process. Mm -hmm. Because you first define certain research questions you want to measure or test against. And for example, if your experiment is an A-B testing, you want to see how your user base respond to a treatment or a change in your solution versus control. And yeah. then you, you compare if there is an improvement in the metrics that you want to move. And normally in that experiment, you don't know why or how is this improvement happening. And this is where UX research brings a qualitative layer to inform, okay, this is responding or yielding better results because of X, Y, and Z. And mm -hmm. this is how uh, we go about the experimentation. Before we have a final uh, product build, we are testing different parts of it in increments and see how the user base responds to it. Is experiments um, essential part of every time you do an UX or is it sometimes you do experiments, sometimes you're very sure of what the users are asking for because you've already got the data or, or is it in each of the UX uh, that's a research that you conduct all the way to the product management that there are at least 10 experiments need to be done or 20 or 100 or whatever, you know, uh, give us a bit of a flavor of uh, what we're talking about when we talk about experiments. Yeah, it's now it's a hard to answer because it really depends on the nature and the context of what change or what solution you are willing to ship. But in sure. general, what you aim to do is shorten the product life cycle. And by that, I mean the time that you take to convert an idea into a reality, into something people can touch. And first that is done through prototypes, which yeah. are non-functional for the most part. And then you test the prototype with the assistance of a moderator. But when that prototype is almost working, you release an alpha, uh, I'm using very technical words, I don't know if, sure. if that, that could help, but you release a portion of your development and see how early adopters would use it. And normally you use people that you can trust in, in a control setting to see yeah. how much is your solution solving the original problem. And from there you go into beta testing, which is you put it out, you let more people try it, and then you see how these people uh, would respond. And after that, you kind of start rolling it out to the broader uh, user base. And those experiments are a control way of putting a new solution out there and see what problems they have. And even if you've done a lot of research and a lot of iterations, normally those solutions are not perfect because sure. that's the, the nature of this development is that we are innovating. We're creating something that wasn't there before, maybe in the entire world. So we are aiming to advance the status quo and by that, we try new things and then we see if those things work or don't work. That's right. why we use this control way of exposing your unfinished or imperfect solution to the world. 
And the problem I see is that many companies wait too long until they expose their solution. And sometimes other digital native companies who maybe start later are earlier in the market because they don't mind taking the risk. It's seen as a good thing. Like you are a risk taker and you put your solution that is unfinished, that not might fully work out there in the market. You mentioned about uh, work or doesn't work. Um, are there certain guidelines, certain measurement yardsticks that you use saying, um, you know what, if, if this is the experiment we're conducting or if this is the research that we're conducting, these are the milestones that we need to reach? How, how do you, how do you put those yardsticks? Absolutely. Like be, before, and I can give you a very concrete example, but before you actually start the experiment, you define what are the success KPIs and also mm -hmm. the break glass scenario, which means that right. if we are really underperforming, we're going to stop these experiments before we hurt more people or the experience of more people. And uh, so if you underperform, you are kind of breaking the glass, then it's kind of a, a red alarm, red flag, and right. we pause this thing. Yeah. If uh, we actually achieve in the given period that we have the success KPIs, then there is a promise to scale this solution to more people. So sure. if we actually get to convert more users to pay, if you get them to stay longer or engage more with your product, then this has been a successful experiment and we're going to do something about it. And we're going to continue developing or scaling the solution. If you look at a typical sort of initiative, a UX research-based initiative, um, would you call it a big project, mid-sized project, small projects? And I'm coming from, I'm coming from a lot of the people who are involved in the technical space or the technology space and the digital space. They still come, or they still come from kind of the old school thoughts, you know, where there used to be large transformation projects that could last one and a half, two years, ERP implementation and kind of that, right? Whereas some of the new sort of digital enabling technology-based projects are like very nifty, very small scale. So, so describe to me a, a typical UX project. Wow. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that if you want to... Uh, discover a space that your company has not worked on before, you start mm -hmm. with a research to investigate what are the actual needs, aspirations or frustrations in this field. And that yeah. may range, that we call a discovery research and that may range from one to three months depending on how comprehensive it is. I, I did studies in five countries and that involved a lot more travel and that take into the, the longer spectrum. Mm -hmm. But if we want to add a feature and that feature is a small increment to the core service or product that we have, that, that sure. may take only two weeks to test. So from some concept or sketches to some set of interviews where you can validate the, the response of your users, that doesn't take any long. And, and by doing that, you can save a lot of time in developing and programming all of the solution and designing the high fidelity prototypes because mm -hmm. what you are doing is you are moving everything earlier. And as I mentioned before, putting things out there and taking that risk a lot sooner 
And mm -hmm. <clears throat> the principle under this is the agile principle where you fail soon and often so that you learn faster. faster by learning faster, you get earlier to the market and, and you nail or kind of get to the right solution or the right direction of the solution a lot sooner. Right. So, so are, you, are you saying that in order for people uh, to work with uh, UX research, um, agile is, is the way to go about, uh, you know, people should not at all look at the waterfall model, or would you say there are still some places where you could use the long drawn waterfall model uh, compared to the agile uh, approach? It, it depends a lot to, to their organization and what I've seen, and I've worked recently at a company that uh, implements the agile and it's also kind of time boxing each of the activities which means that if in this given two weeks frame, you have not been able to do more, mm -hmm. then now you need to move to the next thing. And, and I don't like to be, I use the word Taliban or like extreme <laughs> into how much you follow a particular method. Methodology, so, right. In fact, in my field of UX research, there are pretty fine methods that are kind of tools in my mm. tool set. And I don't use a tool as it is. Yeah. I actually adapt the tool to my context, to my needs. And I end up designing a hybrid tool that has something mm. of here, something of there. So in a way, I, I like to be flexible and, and do whatever makes the most sense. And, and this is what I see most companies missing, like common sense. You don't have to be absolute and extreme about this way of doing it you just can give people the empowerment and the trust and and they will do their best with whatever the resources they have you've highlighted uh, one of the uh, one of the areas that we constantly tell people you know uh, people get caught up uh, with these methodologies they get caught up with the format versus the substance you know agile as a philosophy is allows you to uh, you know uh, fail fast learn faster whereas people tend to get boxed in like you know i need to do a sprint for four weeks and that's it you know and then you need to move on so so uh, very very nicely put about uh, creating a hybrid model um one example that I really love about my previous manager. Her, her name is Aswadi. And, and she would tell me, I mm -hmm. like, I like you and my team to have a percentage of your time dedicated to this thing that we are working on, but a 20% of your time should be dedicated to a more longer term strategic topic. Think sure. about it and tell me which one fits best. And that will allow you to play into the short, medium term and also to play into the longer term and more strategic roadmapping level. And I think if we all dedicated a portion of our time to look at the bigger picture, we could ultimately make better decisions and, and, and work more as a collective group. Right, right. Um, now, Changing gears, um, from a UX perspective, are there any holy cows, i.e. processes or functions that you say, you know what, we are experiences that you don't want to touch? Wow. Um, 
I think there are principles. Uh, there are principles right. about privacy of your participant and, and respect, no? So whatever we do or ask, we always start by saying the, cast, the user, hey, feel free to leave at any point. Feel free not to answer a question that you don't feel like uh, answering because it's private or you just simply don't want to uh, respond to. And there is no right or wrong answer. This is all about your experience. So those are principles of respect and privacy of, of the data and using that with certain precautions so there are no uh, leakage. Then yeah. I believe there, there is another principle of um, being neutral and objective to the data you gather. So yeah. back to the original topic I mentioned about doing some sort of research or doing a more formal uh, research. The difference is that you are very objective and very neutral and transparent about your process and how you um, concluded certain insights out of the evidence or facts that you gather. So being uh, transparent about that process and being very objective to the things that you learn are also very important principles into, into this. And I don't want to mention particular methods because that will again kind of box sure. our uh, area of expertise. You've had experience working for uh, both large companies as well as uh, some of the smaller size companies. Uh, in the large companies, especially in the uh, conventional companies, um, whenever you need to do something, um, whether it's experiments, whether it's projects, they always ask you for a business case. Uh, is this something that, uh, you know, in your experience, in your area of work, uh, how prevalent is the concept of asking for a business case, return on investment kind of thing, versus more of, hey, you know, here's a budget, keep experimenting, come up with better ways of doing things, and if it works, we get better customers. There, there, is, there is a mix. There is a, a set of empowerment to explore things, but mm -hmm. you always have to be transparent towards your bigger stakeholder group. So normally uh, we use the a type of document that is not a business case, but it was RFC, it's a request for comments, which means you can propose doing whatever you want to propose that fits the company strategy, uh, but you need to expose that to your peers and some uh, people in different teams. And they mm -hmm. would comment and, and then that process could get approved or not based on how well you are addressing business needs and user needs in, in this uh, proposal. Amazon, Amazon uses something very similar where they have a four piece uh, system and you can of describe what you're aiming to do. And then there is a whole peer review section where that gets approved or rejected based on how well it is actually addressing the, each of the, the segments. So right. it's, it's a bit of a mix, but the process in general is faster, more agile, and, and gives you a bit more freedom than the top-down process that is more traditional, and we're doing this, and then you execute on that um, voice or order. Right. And, and in the RFC, which is a request for comments document, um, uh, I'm, I'm sure there is an uh, emphasis on uh, the idea itself and what is it trying to address. 
uh, the market. Uh, are there some numbers uh, mentioned there, you know, financial numbers, the amount of population it's going to impact? Uh, are there some quantitative details captured in those sort of documents? Normally, yes. Normally, those numbers have to do with the success KPIs we mentioned mm -hmm. before. And you normally need to demonstrate that you're making progress towards those metrics, not necessarily financial, it might be engagement, it might be sure. uh, the, the bounce rate or, or how longer they uh, engage with the service than simply uh, a dollar figure. But right. those numbers are the ones that will be used later if the project gets approved to measure your success against. Right, and I think I think that's uh, that's a, a sort of critical shift that uh, we see uh, a, a very different kind of shift that we see, you know, ever since the advent of digital technology. Because in the past, everything had to be financial; everything has to be uh, has to have an ROI and all of that stuff. But now, um, you know, if the goal is to get four million users. Mm -hmm. then that's the goal right and 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 uh, and because you as a startup or as a, uh, a company that is in the digital space um, uh, you know it's it's not necessarily what's the value per user what's the average revenue per user ARPU, the uh, other metrics that gets used but uh, it's essential essentially i need four million users signed up and and that shows the validation of this of the idea in the market compared to um, you need to invest a million dollars. What am I going to return? Getting in return in one and a half years. So, so yes, yeah. it it is true. But while that is true, it, it can be also misused. And I'm going and to then, give you a couple of examples. So imagine that I make a campaign, yeah, where every user that downloads this app will get whatever reward. And I've been right. advising a company now, a startup in Singapore, and they have seen an increase in downloads and and first time users, but just to get the reward. And then they've never engaged with the service again. So I think that is kind of manipulating a bit the numbers while sure. those initiatives to increase downloads didn't drive or direct us to the right set of users and didn't solve any problem. It was simply mm -hmm. a, an acquisition channel as you could do all sort of promotions or kind of paid ads to get those people. So. Well, that is true and that is important to kind of validate that you are solving an actual problem. If you're using those artificial ways of pumping up the numbers, mm -hmm. then you are not really investing the resources in, in the right uh, solutions and the right ways of uh, getting the word out there. Right, and I, I think that's a very interesting uh, uh, question, interesting uh, scenario that, it, that you pick up. Um, what would you advise? I mean, how would people, because this I know a lot of people make mistakes. And in fact, I've been, I've been involved with a particular um, uh, startup digital hotel kind of a, a setup where uh, they were discounting room rates in order to acquire customers, you know. And, and one of the things when I was reviewing them, I asked them, I said, listen, you know, a person who's paying $200 a night, is of a different, different profile compared to a person who's paying $75 or $50 a night, you know? Um, and, and if you discount off the $200 room to a $50 room, what are the chances that the $200 paying guest 
would actually avail of that $50 versus a $50 guy coming in and saying, yeah, that's a steal. I, I will take it. Exactly. Like you are uh, burning cash to get and attract the, right, the wrong person. Right. Right. So, so what would people do or what would companies need to do in order to get, uh, 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 you know, a reasonable metrics in place, you know, um, uh, any thoughts on that or any advice that you would like to give to people? I, I used, uh, I used a system that was impact driven, but I, I forget the name. Maybe later I'll, I'll email it to you and then maybe sure. you can put it in, in one kind of little banner. But uh -huh. the, the intention is if we want to achieve this goal and that goal needs to yep. be hurry, but it has to be also realistic. Correct. What are the different dimensions or levers that we want to move? And I'll, I'll find that technical name to, of, the, of the process to, for you to include it. And it was really interesting. Like we, we need to increase, let's say, revenue and we can do that by increasing the number of users or increasing the price. And then, yeah. and then how to increase the number of users. And then there are kind of three, four levers and how to increase right. the price uh, might be, and then there are a set of uh, levers as well. So I believe that top down and then bottom up process can land and yield more concrete and achievable numbers. And then you need to figure out which initiatives map out to this set of levers to actually achieve that goal and then kind of split that target among the different groups by influencing those metrics. Right, right. Um, now, a couple of uh, uh, questions back. You had mentioned about engaging and collaborating with customers and you had alpha customers and beta uh, customers. Um, you know, and again, uh, you know, people coming from conventional industries um, often struggle with the idea of how can I develop, how can I share things with my customers when the product is not ready, you know? Um, so they have this kind of mindset block uh, that prevents them to engage uh, customers, you know, on one side. And on the other side, um, they are, they are, they don't necessarily feel comfortable giving or thinking that customers may be willing to do so, you know, as in participate and developing, co-developing the products, you know, how would, how would you go about creating this collaboration with customers, you know, uh, putting the customers in uh, their skin in the game of sorts, yeah. Yeah, I, I have actually, it's not a hypothetical solution. I have uh, gone through that process and First, you need to coach the organization and, and, and start contributing to that uh, cultural and mindset shift that to do the right thing, we have to put the customers first. And while we are putting them there, every decision that the business makes is well aligned and mapping well to their needs. And then second, by bringing them to the field, it's really easy after, like you can be in 10 different meetings repeating the same story in many different ways and your executives may not buy that idea. And then when I see that, I say, wait a minute, let's organize something next week. We're going mm -hmm. to do this next week and you're going to come with me mm -hmm. and you're going to be at first just observing and, and maybe you can ask some questions as well. And after they are there for a couple of sessions, they thought, oh, and they even say, oh, how was I kind of so disturbing that 
I mm. thought it, it was this way. And, and I'm actually seeing that they actually need this other thing. So sometimes the experience and I'm bringing them to the field to have the experience is a lot more impactful to change the mindset sure. than trying so many different things. So you need persuasive people who can make those leadership and, and top executives come uh, to a middle ground, even if yeah. not fully convert them into being like user advocates, middle ground. And that middle ground will show them, hey, this is the way. And very quickly, I was there and my executive was telling me, from now on, if it doesn't have customer impact, I don't want anybody to be working on that idea. And then we immediately shut down a project of six months duration to refocus and pivot towards the right direction. Right. And, and would, you, would you kind of extend the same um, approach of persuasion and engaging, uh, like you engage your stakeholders the same way you would approach um, your customers? Uh, would you say the same? And, and I'm just going to extend that thought one more. Uh, when we talk about customer collaboration, who are we talking about? Are we talking about the CEO of the customer? Are we talking about kind of the middle manager? Are we talking about the frontline guys? Who, who are we talking about when we talk about customer collaboration? Yeah, in fact, I don't use the word customer that often. I prefer using the word user. Right. And, and by user, it can be anybody who interacts with the solution. So gotcha. back to the Uber topic, it was the driver, it was the person, the passenger who gets the thing. But if we go into a more traditional service, for example, like advertising things, you can talk to the people who see the ads and engage with that content. You can talk to the advertisers themselves or even to the people who make the delivery possible between the, the advertiser and the, um, and the buyer. So sure. it's really about defining really well the user. And from then on, you can decide how to engage with that user and how much do you want to bring it to co-design with you or co-create with you or rather kind of test with the, that user whatever solution you are working on. What are some of the challenges that organizations face uh, uh, when, when going through UX research? First, I think the lack of awareness. And I am very glad you're doing this because uh, many organizations don't know about this and they don't know about the impact and the value that the research can bring to them. So once they know about it, we are already half of the, the job is, is already done. Um, second is um, they have processes that may not fit completely uh, this mindset and this mindset may end up uh, stopping projects like I mentioned before or suggesting other projects and now how do you incorporate that into your process if you define strategies every year mm -hmm. so what I see more and more is that companies are reviewing those three, go three year strategy plans a lot sooner maybe every six months mm -hmm. and then I, I think after you know about it and you are bought into the value, it is really easy to start piloting things and testing things. Maybe not in your cash cow, but you start in some 
new topics. And that's why there are many R&D departments. Right. But sometimes those R&D departments don't have the right innovation focus of, okay, let's engage with the user. They are so much into technology and, and what can right. this technology enable and what would be the numbers or the models. So once again, when you have the right mindset, then you start doing that a bit more. So I, I believe it's a combination of factors, but after there is awareness and there is some sort of budget, then things start to, to flow and to build that new common sense that will align everybody. Because the, the beauty of becoming customer centric is that the confidence increases into making the right decisions and the disparity between different opinions, especially of big bosses and big leaders, kind of reduces the intensity because now there is evidence that this is the direction and these are the problems that we need to solve. And, not those others. And that increases the purpose and the, the sense of belonging because as a team, and I was really proud of one of the projects that I worked on because suddenly we were seeing how the work of six months of a big team of 100 plus people was influencing millions of uh, lives of drivers mm -hmm. who were suddenly loving what Uber was doing for them. So you in immediately uh, notice that increase in your morale, in your uh, cohesion as a team, because you are all aligned towards the same purpose. Let's reward the right drivers and, and make them proud of what they do. So it's all about that human connection, that mm -hmm. something that you and I share clicks. Mm -hmm. And from now on, we're connected regardless of uh, whatever idea or preference we have in mind. We are connected by this thing and this thing has been given to us by a user. Looking into the future, you know, uh, since uh, you, you are already in a very pioneering field yourself, um, and now if you were to look beyond uh, the current state we are in, what are some of the future trends and uh, some of the future excitement uh, that's going to take place in, in your space that you think? I anticipate, and it's already starting to happen, um, that the trends of privacy and transparency will be broadly adopted. Normally, companies have a lot more information th than we know, and having a sense of control over what happens to our data, the data that we are giving out most of the times for free, mm -hmm. um, will be a big trend. And we start to see Facebook, doing things, WhatsApp doing things on that. But we want to make sure that our data is used carefully and controlling that data will become a, a new trend. So the companies who do that best will mm -hmm. retain their users or attract more users a lot easier. Then with this coronavirus, I, I anticipate that remote working will become a new normal. And and this will open up so many possibilities. Uh, for example, I use a lot a tool called Miro, Miro.com, mm -hmm. which is a digital solution for collaboration. So imagine a big wall that I was mentioning before with post-it, but now those post-its are digital. Yeah. So how can we create new things together while you are in your home, I'm in my home, and maybe another colleague of us is in India or it's in um, Singapore how do we work together and how do we create new things mm. and align together? 
And another trend, and we start to see in driverless cars and all sort of human-machine interactions. Mm-hmm. I think they will conquer more part of our lives because you suddenly don't need to connect to another human to solve a problem. You tell a machine directly or indirectly and that problem gets solved. So the more uh, routine task type of task will be somehow eliminated, freeing up time and space for us to do whatever we uh, most value. And, and the last one, and personalization, I think has been discussed so many years now, but I think more and more with the, the whole overdose of information that is out there, like curating and personalizing the experiences will be uh, a trend that will continue uh, to be there. Now that I'm working with VR, virtual reality, and also augmented reality, I see that those experiences can be even more personalized, and I am excited about what is to come. I, this is a very nascent field, but I am anticipating. I'm working with a startup called Spatial.io, mm-hmm. and they help you meet another person or another group of people in 3D, and, and the experience is so realistic that you are kind of looking at each other, walking around each other, and then interacting with 3D models that you are seeing from your own home and, and it feels so real that it's daunting. You may want to not go to the office because this thing makes it so easy. And, and, and for people who are used to collaborate remotely, like connecting to the, the previous topic, but now with this add-on topic of virtual reality, you may have multiple new options to solve problems and communicate ideas in a whole different way. That, that's a very, very interesting idea. So essentially using virtual reality uh, to have meetings, especially in, in likes, times of uh, current crisis, so have five or six people in a room, virtual room, but they have the feel as if they're in one single room. When do you, when do you think that's... Uh, that's going to be mainstream. When do you think that sort of uh, te- technology, I know it is available, but when do you think people will do ma- mass adoption on that? Yeah, I don't want to put roof like under <laughs> my, my um, stone under my own uh, roof. But yeah. what I believe is that for sectors like uh, education, design, mm. uh, even IT development, those things will start to, to become assets or resources to make our work a lot more efficient. So imagine that you have to travel 100 people of your company every month for them to have meetings. So imagine that those travels sometimes are Europe to America. Yeah. If you save just 50% of those by having a headset and Mm. making sure that the, the system is working smoothly, I believe the trend can really accelerate uh, quickly. But there is a, also a lack of awareness of this technology and, and the technology needs to be designed with a very usability like centered type of thing because you sure. get absorbed into another thing. And one thing I told them the first time I used it is, hey, the time flies and there is no clock in this reality. And right. I don't want to miss my appointment with the doctor. So. Sure. What can we do? And they tell me, no, no, we are implementing a clock uh, very soon. 
Okay, okay. So designing the right things and, and making sure the usability is good will definitely make the adoption um, happen a lot faster. But I, I don't know, I cannot say a date. I'm not an expert to anticipate that. Right, right. Well, I guess uh, we will continue uh, observing that and, and uh, monitoring that uh, very, very closely in the next uh, few months, few years. Uh, that's that we're going to um, uh, that we're going to look at. Um, one last question uh, for the people who are um, aspiring to get into this uh, uh, space, or or for people uh, who are looking at engaging the UX teams in their own sort of businesses, what would be, uh, let's say, your last tip of the day for them? I think be be curious. Um, everything starts with this empathy and, and if you're curious to ask people like the same way you are doing or I, I tend to get a lot of messages and, and LinkedIn about hey do you have an advice for this or for that and those people who are curious become the winners because they are doing something no one else is doing or, or not everyone is doing and by being curious you can ask questions that maybe have not been asked and then start thinking or connecting ideas that nobody else has. So I, 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 I start there and I'm reachable. I really like engaging and connecting with, with people. So feel free to share my LinkedIn details or medium details and then we can uh, start new conversations from there. Excellent. I guess uh, you took away my last question, which was essentially, what's the best way uh, to connect with you? But uh, you prefer LinkedIn, uh, I can guess uh, from the answer. Yeah, I, I engage yeah, I engage with LinkedIn on a daily basis, uh, reading content, sharing some uh, content of my own as well, and, and also messaging people. So happy to do it that way. Very good, very good. And maybe, uh, you know, some of us will again meet in the future in the virtual reality world as well. <laughs> Look, it's so realistic. You don't notice it is virtual because it's an avatar, 3D avatar of yourself. And it looks so realistic. It's a bit uh, freaking. Excellent, excellent. Eduardo, it was such a pleasure to speak with you. You have provided so much of insight, so much of um, information that uh, normally you don't necessarily get by reading books or even by uh, many times when you act in a situation you get caught in a situation you don't uh, see so much of details but this was awesome this was brilliant so thank you so much again um, on uh, behalf of me of course as well as Fitzgerald and all the viewers who will be watching uh, your, uh, your interview so uh, with that I would like to thank you so this was the episode uh, of interview series, which was focusing on digital innovation. And our topic today was user experience of UX research. And if you find any value from these interviews, if you find any insights coming out of these interviews, then do make sure that you share this interview with your network, with your friends, with your colleagues. And if you like to keep continuing listening and viewing more videos in the future, then don't forget to subscribe to, to our channel. So with this, I would like to bring closure uh, to the interview today. Uh, I would wish all of you stay healthy and stay safe. Until next time, goodbye.